Open your Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. I'm going to be looking at the Song of Solomon tonight. And uh, this book, more, more than any other in our Bibles, exalts in the wonder of, of marital love. Uh, it brings us back to the original marriage in Genesis chapter 2, because here in the Song of Solomon, we find uh, Solomon and, and his bride in an Eden-like garden, and they are naked and, and unashamed. And, and yet, while, while this is the case, this song is far more than a poetic celebration of, of earthly love. For this earthly marriage between the son of David and, and his bride is, is but a symbolic picture of the ultimate union between Christ and his church. And thus, it, it's not only proper, but, but I think it's, it's necessary for us to see Christ in this love song. You'll find in your bulletin some, some reasons why this is so, and I'm, I'm not going to take the time tonight to, to flesh those out. Uh, but before we do come to our text, I, I want to illustrate this fact with, with an account from the life of, of James Henley Thornwell. Thornwell was an American Presbyterian theologian, and, and just weeks before his daughter's wedding day, uh, his daughter contracted cholera typhoid, a, a very deadly disease, and, and it became quickly evident that she was not going to live to see her wedding day. Thornwell, as, as any father would be, was, was devastated by this. And as his daughter lay on her deathbed, she, she assured him with these words. She said, Father, I now go to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. She died before the wedding day came. And as the story goes, she was buried in her wedding dress. And, and the gravestone over, over her grave had these words etched upon it. As a bride prepared for her groom. As a bride prepared for her groom. The love between a husband and wife friends, is, is a wonderful thing, but, but it is merely a dim reflection of the covenant love between Christ and His church. And so with those thoughts before us, let's turn to Song of Solomon chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7. Song of Solomon chapter 8. This is the petition of the bride. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's pray. 
Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this revelation of, of love in its power, in its permanence, in its, in its pricelessness. We pray, O oh God, that as we would come to your word now, that you would help us to, to come to a deeper and fuller assurance of Christ's love for us. That we would see that he has indeed set us as a seal upon his heart and upon his arm. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've been married for any length of time, you can probably testify to the fact that, that one of the, the subtlest threats to a healthy marriage is complacency. Complacency. It's, it's so easy in married life to, to begin to just effortlessly coast along. In the months prior to the wedding day, a week could not go by without us writing a love letter to our soon-to-be spouse. We wanted to spend every waking moment with them, and, and we were always thinking up fresh and, and creative ways to express our love towards them. But now, having actually entered into covenant with one another before God, we grow complacent. It's a rather, rather strange thing if you think about it. We, we expect the, the love, romance, and devotion to be sustained automatically and effortlessly. And, and more than that, we, we lack a vision for cultivating and expanding our love toward our spouse. The marriage relationship may have the appearance of health. We're not fighting all the time. We're not committing adultery on one another. We spend a decent amount of time together. We even pray together regularly. We're all good, right? Wrong. Wrong. For where this complacency resides, there will not be a thriving marriage. Where there is no longing and striving after an increase of affection, there is bound to be a loss of affection. And this has, has a clear spiritual parallel. Our spiritual condition, friends, is never, it's never a static, motionless thing. If we are not pursuing to grow in love for Christ, we can be sure that our love toward Him will be waning. If we're not seeking after a deeper assurance of His love toward us, then such an acquaintance with His love will be in the decline. If we are not putting sin to death, we can be sure that sin will be killing us. We're either pressing forward by the grace of God or we're backsliding. There's, there's no motionless existence in the Christian life. And thus, complacency 
in our relationship with Christ is one of the subtlest dangers we face as Christians. Our passage tonight gives us a a picture of a spouse who is anything but complacent. We find here in this bride a healthy dissatisfaction with the present state of affairs. A craving for deeper intimacy. A consuming desire for a fuller acquaintance with the love of her groom. Our passage teaches us that the healthy soul, the healthy soul, having experienced the love of Christ, longs and pursues after a deeper knowledge and assurance of that love. And I want to open up our text, which is really the climax of the Song of Solomon, the text before us tonight, uh, with with the help of three heads. First, uh, we'll see the pledge of love, then the, the permanence of love, and And last, the price of love. Notice first love's pledge. The bride here, having been reconciled to her groom after a period of painful separation, uh, in in verse 5, comes forth from the wilderness, leaning upon her lover. In this posture of deep intimacy, she seeks after a pledge of his love. Verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. She petitions Solomon, seeking assurance of his love, asking him to set her as a seal upon her heart and on his heart and his arm. This is, this is legal language. A seal would have been used in, in the ancient Near East to indicate commitment and possession. It consisted of a a stamp or a precious stone with an intricate engraving on it which would have identified the owner. In a very real sense, the seal symbolized the person. And it would be stamped with wax upon documents or, or objects as a signature of sorts, affirming ownership or allegiance. This is also metaphorical language here. The bride is likening herself to a seal, desiring to be indelibly stamped upon her beloved's heart and arm. Just as a signet ring would have been impressed upon a document to, to indicate the transfer of ownership, she is desirous to be impressed upon her beloved. She wants to know that she possesses his inmost affections, that she has his heart. She longs for the confident knowledge that the the strong arms of her beloved are, are set apart for her alone. She is saying here, show me, show me that I am your uniquely treasured possession. She seeks a pledge of his love. Now, 
the bride in our passage was not lacking in evidence of the love of her groom. The, the context is pervaded with love. In chapter 7, the groom bears his heart toward her, praising her and proclaiming his delight in her. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. The, the groom says, How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. And after this lengthy song of praise, in verse 10, the bride declares, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. His desire is for me. In other words, I have gained possession of his heart. He is mine and, and all of his delight is found in me. And then in chapter 8, verse 5, she comes forth from the wilderness leaning on her beloved, indicating a depth of intimacy and nearness. She knows and is presently experiencing the loving devotion of, of Solomon. And yet, she wants that love to be more fully confirmed. John Owen commenting on this text, speaks of a holy greediness of delight with which the saints possess towards Christ. A holy greediness of delight. The heart set on Christ is greedy, greedy to know and to have and to experience more of his love, to see more of his heart. It is, it's never quite satisfied, but is always asking for more, more, more. We all understand what unholy greed and discontentment is. We see it in our own souls, day in and day out. We, we see it in our, in our children. But, but do we know this, this holy, holy greediness of delight? Like the bride, the church has profoundly experienced the love of Christ if you're a Christian here tonight, Jesus has shed his love abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. He has made plain that his desire is for you and that you are the object of his soul's delights. And yet, having tasted that love, do you not desire to know it more? Is there not a longing in your heart for a greater confirmation, a deeper assurance, and a, and a clearer manifestation of his affections toward you? Or have you grown spiritually complacent? Are you satisfied with low levels of assurance, content with little experiential acquaintance with Christ in his love? We learn here from the bride that, that the healthy soul, having experienced Christ's love, pursues after a deeper knowledge and assurance of that love. 
Such a one seeks after the strength to comprehend what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. All of us here tonight, at, at least at times, lack this zealous intentionality in our pursuit of Christ. Our intimacy with Him can, can ebb and, and wane. But, but while this in itself is, is dangerous, there's, there's a condition yet more dangerous than that. And that is when it no longer bothers us that there is a lack of intimacy with Christ. My marriage is not in a good place if intimacy is lacking. But how much worse condition is my marriage in if intimacy is lacking and I don't even care. I don't care that it's lacking. My soul is in a in a bad place when I, when I come to the Word in the morning and it's dry. My heart is cold. And I, and I find myself just checking off the chapters on my, on my reading list so that I can get on and do what I really want to do. That's, that's, not a, that's not a good place to be. But, but far worse to be there and not be troubled by it. Far worse to be there, to be, to be cold and indifferent to the word of Christ and, and, and to not be driven to my knees, crying out to God for forgiveness, looking to God, praying to Him that, that He would illumine His word, that He would open my mind to behold wondrous things, that He would kindle my affections. My soul is in a bad place when I come to prayer in the morning and my mind is going in a hundred different directions. Maybe you don't know what that's like. That, that happens to me often. A hundred different directions. My mind is on everything but the God to whom I am praying. And there's very little, if any, praying in my praying. That's a bad place to be but far worse to be there and to not be bothered by the fact that I'm there. To not be striving to bring my thoughts into focus. Not be striving to, to cultivate intimacy and communion with God. Far worse to be complacent and content. The, the question for us tonight is, is not do you and I know times when intimacy with Jesus is lacking. We all know times like that. We all know what that is like. The question tonight is what do we do in those times? Does it bother us when we find ourselves in those times? Or have we grown complacent with low levels of loving fellowship with Jesus Christ? That's the question. The bride here has petitioned her groom. She's, she's hungry to know more of the love of her groom. And, and having petitioned 
her groom, she now turns to speak of the nature of love itself. You'll see there in verse 6, after this petition, there's that little word for, for. And this indicates that an argument is being set forth here as to why her groom should heed her request. And the reason she gives is the nature of love itself, both in its permanence and in its price. The first reason she gives is the permanence of love. Look at verse 6. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Here we have the use of poetic parallelism. Love parallels jealousy. Strong parallels fierce. Death parallels grave. And these corresponding lines make clear that that true love is a jealous love. It is an exclusive love which entails absolute loyalty and single-minded commitment. It is a love that says, my beloved is mine and I am his. It will not tolerate rivals. And such jealous affection, the bride says, is strong as death and fierce as the grave. No matter how hard men try, they cannot escape the powerful grip of death. Death being personified here is one of the strongest forces in the world. It has a sting that is unyielding and irreversible. And the bride is here saying that the jealous love between husband and wife is of a power and a permanence comparable to death. It is a powerful force which binds the heart of the lover to its object. The bride continues in verse 6. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Here, this powerful force of love is likened to a fire, and it burns with such an intense heat that there is nothing that can put it out, not even great torrents of water. This jealous, single-eyed devotion is a divine flame, which the greatest of foes cannot extinguish. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends. And, and this, friends, is the argument of, of the bride here. She speaks of the powerful, enduring permanence of this love as a motive for her groom to bear his heart towards her and to give himself exclusively to her. She has been consumed with this flame of love towards him. And she wants the assurance that his heart is ablaze with the same. Christ's heart burns for his bride with the fires of a jealous love as fierce as the grave. 
He possesses a single-eyed devotion for his church, a love toward her not merely as strong as death, but stronger than death. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ possessed such jealous affection for you, Christian, that he endured the fierceness of the grave and the floodwaters of crucifixion to win you. And and he did so that, that he might dwell with you in a garden of eternal bliss forever. And there is no torrent There is no torrent, not not Satan, not the world, not even your own sin that can put out this fire of love in the bosom of the Savior. His love for you surpasses knowledge. The bride in our text sets forth not only the the powerful permanence of love, but but also the price of love. You look at verse 7. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. I think there there are two things being communicated here. First, A love does not have a price. It cannot be bought. There is no amount of money that can secure such jealous, single-hearted devotion. A loyal love of this kind is a a free gift. And the, the bride is here sensing her powerlessness to procure his love. There are are many who think that they can earn the love of Christ. Many, Many professing Christians fall into this trap of thinking that the love of Christ has a price. But true love, the bride tells us, cannot be bought. True love cannot be bought. And so, so if you are seeking to, to merit Christ's love, what's, what this text tells us is that you will be utterly despised. If you think, oh, if I could just be more faithful in my church attendance or sin less or read my Bible more, you've, you've missed it. That's, that's not how love works The love in the heart of Christ towards his bride is a free, gracious gift. It cannot be bought, but is received by the empty hands of faith. But I think the bride is saying more than this here. I I think that she is conveying here that love, true love, possesses a worth beyond description. 
It is so valuable that to seek to purchase it by anything else is utter folly. Love is in a category all its own, and it is to be treasured more highly than all the gold and silver of this world. In other words, it is, it is not only priceless, but it is exceedingly precious. What is all the world, wealth in the world compared to the love of Christ? There is nothing more valuable to the church than the loving heart of her bridegroom. His jealous affection for us, friends, is so indescribably precious that that we ought to gladly forgo the whole world to have it. If we possess His love, friends, we have everything. And if we lack His love, we have nothing. Nothing. Christ's love is the greatest of treasures. And it is for this reason that the healthy soul pursues after a deeper knowledge and assurance of it. Vibrant Christianity is one of hankering after more of the love of Christ. And and such a pursuit of assurance of this love necessarily promotes health and life in the soul. There's, there's a certain circularity here. I've been saying that the healthy soul will pursue assurance of Christ's love, but then the deeper our assurance is of Christ's love, the more healthy our soul will be. It is only as we come to know His love towards us that our love towards Him will grow. The soul that has been taken up with the love of Christ cannot help but say in response, I am yours, O Christ, in body and in soul, in, in life and in death, I belong to you. My, my affections are yours. My, my heart and, and my arm are, are yours. I've been consumed with love for you. Only only the soul assured of Christ's love can say such a thing. Likewise, a, a growing acquaintance with Christ in love will promote a hatred of all sin. The things of this world will grow strangely dim the more we come to see the loving hearts of our bridegroom. And, and such a deepening of assurance of, of His love will fuel zealous service unto God. To the extent that we know His love, we will be propelled into selfless, sacrificial, joyful service unto the One who gave up everything to have us. It also enables us to persevere through great suffering when we see our, our sympathizing Savior with us, not leaving us or forsaking us, and we see His heart opened wide towards us. What, what brings greater comfort to us in our struggles than that? Perhaps 
you struggle tonight with, with a lack of such assurance. You're, you're hearing everything that I'm saying and saying, Nick, that's, that's wonderful. And, I, and I, I believe that Christ loves His church like that. I believe that He loves His church like that, but, but I just don't know if He loves me like that. If that's, if that's you here tonight, let me, let me ask you a question. Have you love for Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you desire Him and delight in Him? Not perfectly, but, but sincerely and, and truly. Can you, can you look within and, and say that? If, if you can look within your heart and e- see even a, a spark of love for Christ, then be assured of Christ's love for you. Because we love Him only because He first loved us. Love in the heart for Christ is evidence of Christ's heart of love for you. Now, if you look within and, and find yourself wanting, find yourself lacking, if you, if you look within and, and don't see even, even the, the faintest evidence of love or desire or, or delight in Christ, then, then I plead with you to, to look to Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Make His redemptive labors your constant meditation. What love has He manifested? Think about it. What love has He manifested in His incarnation as He, the eternal God, took to Himself human flesh that He might redeem your fallen humanity? What love has He shown forth in His perfect life of obedience as He fulfilled the law which you transgressed? What love has He made known in His sin-bearing, wrath-satisfying sacrifice upon the cross, suffering the hell that you deserve? Oh, what, what more? could he do to bear his heart toward you? What more could he do? The love of our Savior is stronger than death. It is a flame that burns with such intensity that nothing can put it out. It is a priceless treasure worth more than all the riches of this world. Do you know it? Have you experienced in it? And and are you growing in your knowing of it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, oh Jesus, that you have borne your heart to us in your word that you have not left us to wonder how you feel towards your bride, but that you have given us a 
a revelation that you have given us uh, 66 love letters in which you express your deep, abiding, eternal, jealous affection towards us, your covenant people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know this love. We want to be healthy Christians, Lord. And, and thus, Lord, we, we long for a deeper assurance of your love toward us. Cause us to know it, O oh God. Even in these moments, Lord Jesus, send your Spirit to bear witness within us that we are yours, if that be the case. And Lord, if not, would you, would you send your spirits to, to open our darkened understanding to behold the glory of the Savior. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.